0: Get Vigoro potting soil just eight ninety seven at the Home Depot. How doers get more done?
3: Hi, I'm Glory Adam, host of Well Read Black Girl. Each week, we journey together through the cultural moment where art, culture, and literature collide, and pay homage to the women whose books we grew up reading. It's the literary kickback you never knew you needed. Listen to Well Read Black Girl on the iHeartRadio Radio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Check out the new podcast, I Am Kobe. Do you want to understand how Kobe Bryant achieved his unequal determination? How did he come to his incredible passion to win? In I Am Kobe, we reveal intimate, never-before-heard tapes of Kobe when he was a teenager, just as he was starting to glimpse his own greatness. It's about the making of an icon. We weave together these tapes with Kobe's high school coaches, his friends, and the figures who knew him in his youth. All episodes are out now, so you can binge the whole thing. Listen to I Am Kobe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hi, I'm Hillary Clinton, and I'm so excited to be back with a third season of You and Me Both. When I started this podcast, we were going through some tough times and let's face it, we still are. And here's what I know, we cannot get through this alone. So please join me for more conversations with people who will make you think, make you laugh and help us find a path forward. This season, I'll be talking about the state of our democracy with experts and with people organizing on the ground. We'll draw inspiration from some amazing people like Olympic star Alison Felix and Grammy Award winner Brandy Carlisle. And we'll get into the hard stuff with writer Cheryl Strade and my dear friend and colleague Huma Abedin. So join us, listen to you and me both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: My name is Michael Shore. I was a writer for the first 4.2 seasons and a producer on The Office.
0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to A New Day. And A New Day brings a new episode of The Office Deep Dive with me, your host, Brian Baumgartner. Uh, Now, I'm thrilled to tell you that today I am bringing back the incredible Mike Schur for part two of our conversation. This is going to be a good one. Uh, To remind you, Mike was one of our original writers and producers on The Office. He went on to co-create Parks and Rec with Greg Daniels, as well as some other huge TV shows of our time, like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Good Place, just to name a few. Now, as I mentioned in the last episode, uh, which you should definitely check out if you haven't already. Mike, as a writer, as a producer, as an artist, he's had some insane achievements, and we're going to get into some of those. But more importantly, you're going to get to hear about the one thing that he always hated, that he described as a, quote, waking nightmare. That's right, his role as Mose Schrute. Now, I was... Oh, you have no idea how happy I was to find out that my suspicions were correct, that Mike had to play Mose as kind of a cruel joke in the writer's room, a writer's room joke, because they found it funny to make him do all of the stupid stuff that he had to do. And boy, he had to do some really stupid stuff, uh, but I'm glad he did, and I'm glad he is back joining us today because Mike is a force in the world of TV. And more than that, he was a huge and important part of the Office family. So please join me in welcoming the man who helped create so many of the iconic TV personalities we know and love, Mike Schur.
5: Bubble and squeak, I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know and squeak i cook it every moment left over from the night before
0: you and i you may uh have forgotten this but you and i share an emmy we do we do yes for the webisodes for the webisodes nice. <laughs> yes um, I don't think, did I, you ever I get yours? I don't
5: think I have a, a actual trophy for it.
0: No. Well, I did. <laughs> um, I do <laughs> partly or <clears throat> all because we were invited to the ceremony and we accepted them oh. and it came home with me. Great. Yeah. So I have it. How's it look? It's great, actually. <laughs> it's really, no, it's Those very webisodes were
5: really fun. I, I have nothing but fond memories of that little crazy day that we spent running yes. around. You and Paul wrote mm-hmm. them. Yep. And it was longer than a day. It was, it I think was it was three days. Three days. I think, yeah. 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 It was 10 episodes over three days. That was like before everyone did webisodes all the time and these little extra things. Like that was a really fun, like, side project that we just sort of threw together. They're really funny, too. They are. Yeah. Yes. And and I think Randall's idea was we
0: were able to do some things there that we we, we couldn't necessarily yes, do that's right.
5: without the full camera crew. I think yes, it was um, the premise was it was like a holiday or something and because yeah. we didn't have everyone to be in the background. Right. Right. So yeah, that was right. It was we had a lot of backstory for why it was the way it was. But um
0: the accounts significant because um I have an Emmy. You Congratulations. Don't have an actual Emmy, but you also won an Emmy. But we were never paid for it. Right. And it led to the writer's strike. <laughs> I watched a video of you yesterday. From when we were on strike? When you were on strike. Yeah. You guys produced a video. Yeah. And you said a number of things in the video. Okay. I don't remember any of them, but. I saw it and I was like, oh my God. And then we were joking that you guys were coming up with bits as you were walking the picket line (laughs) and making the video kind of funny anyway. Um, But you said in part that you're watching this on the internet, a thing that pays us zero dollars. Right. They were put on NBC.com and they sold ads and we won a daytime Emmy and didn't make any money. The writer strike was a really big deal. Yeah. I don't know. Just talk to me about that time and what you remember of Greg saying, no, we're not going to produce
5: material for free. There, It was a very inspiring moment for me personally because the, the central issue at the time, this is 2007, the central issue at the time was jurisdiction over the internet because Netflix hadn't started making original shows yet, but people felt like they were going in that direction and... NBC and every every network had a website, and they were starting to like stream in primitive fashion to stream things on the uh, over the internet. And suddenly, it was like, well, if this is the future, it didn't take a genius to think like, well, if this is the future, like, who cares whether you it's a television screen you hang on your wall or sit on a platform, or whether it's your computer screen? This is how people are consuming the work we do, and we ought to get paid for that. So, so those webisodes were like a big part of that because i I, they were shot with union labor and no one got paid so that was like the you know it wasn't like because of those webisodes that the writers could want on strike those webisodes were an example of the kind of thing that we were trying we were saying like if this is the way things are going we got to do something about this right so because the companies at the time were saying like you know what we don't have enough information let's just let's just let's just wait 3 years from now we'll have more information and then we'll know what the future of this is and we were like no you're you're trying to you're basically trying to grandfather in the internet as like a thing that you don't pay for so um we went on strike and it was a, a huge deal and it was very scary it was like unclear what was going on the communication wasn't sublime and greg was like well we're going to pick at our own show and the reason we're going to pick at our own show is is in a show of solidarity, is not a, say, a saying like, this is the thing we care about the most in the world. And we were in that little Chandler Studios out in the middle of Van Nuys. Like yes. in the, it was not on a major studio lot. And so we all showed up to work at six in the morning and we picketed our own show. And we were in the middle of season four. We were about to shoot the dinner party episode, one of the most famous episodes of the show of all time. The best read-through I think we ever had. Do you remember that yes, read-through? That amazing. read-through was... Was like, it was like a, a rock concert. And we had finished that script. That script was ready to go. And that script could have been shot. The actors could have just executed the script and the directors weren't on strike and the crew wasn't on strike. But Steve Carell said, um, no, I'm not. This is the way we make this show is collaborative. And there's writers on the set and there's producers on the set. And we change things and we work out new little moments and pitch new jokes. And I don't think I'm going to make the show without the writers. And he didn't show up. And so they shot a couple scenes from the episode that Michael Scott wasn't in. And then there was nothing else to do. And the show shut down. And that was such a heroic thing. He just stayed home. And he got calls from a lot of lawyers and a lot of studio executives from really, really powerful people saying, you have to do this. And he was like, no, don't. (laughs) Watch me. And Greg called him and... Uh, He was home and Greg was like, Hey, I know that you've been had a lot of pressure coming at you. Are you okay? And he was like, Yeah, I'm home. I'm playing with my kids and was totally unfazed by it and had the attitude of like, This is a collaborative effort. This is a thing that we do together. We don't do this. This isn't without writers on the set. We don't make the same show and I'm not going to make that show. Fire me, basically, was what he was saying. He called their bluff and the show shut down and Writers were on strike for four months and then they gave up jurisdiction of the internet and we went back to work and then we made the dinner party, which is amazing. Right. And it, it was truly the story of what he did spread like wildfire. Um he did not have to do that. There were very few people who were in the position that he was in, obviously, as the star of a very popular, successful, gigantic, monolithic hit show. But still, he didn't have to do that. He could have. No one would have been mad at him. He right. wasn't on the
0: actors. Oh, well, right. Answering. And I was. You know, I remember having a huge, long conversation with my representation, saying like, "I, how can I walk past them? How can I cross? How can I cross the line?" And he said, "That they, you know, you have no choice. Yeah, you have to
5: show up." And we knew that. And Ed, I remember Ed came out and was like, "Hey guys," and he hung out with us. And he and I remember Ed going. I'm really sorry, but I have, to, and we were like, no, 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 we get it. Your union is not on strike here. Like you're not, we get it. It's fine. No one's bad at you. Like no one had any animosity towards any of the actors because you were in breach of contract. If you didn't show up, Right. Steve was in breach of contract. He just said, I don't care. Right. Fire me. And it's easier for the star of the show to do that right. than it is for anyone else. But, um, the story spread like wildfire. And Mindy wrote a sign in Marker, um, uh, hung it on his trailer that said like Steve Carell, American hero or something and took a picture of it and it spread very quickly around the town. And it was a real like wind uh, beneath the wings of the guild at the time. It's amazing. I mean, he, he, you can't
0: sort of overstate just what an amazing guy he is. Yeah. And person to work with.
5: Yeah. I mean, The person who's number one on the call sheet sets the tone of the show. He or she just does. It's people take their cues from that person. That person kind of says, like, this is what's allowable behavior and this is what isn't allowable behavior in an in a number of different ways, actively and passively. And his presence at the top of the call sheet, especially in that early going, but his professionalism, his his dedication. He was never late a day in his life. Yeah. He knew all of his lines. And when he didn't, he improvised something that was funnier than what we had written. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. I don't know if you know this story, but there was a, um, a, even on successful shows, in fact, especially on successful shows networks are always trying to slash budgets, right? Like when something's making money, it's not like, thank God we're making money. It's how do we make more money? (laughs) Right. And there was a budget meeting with NBC and Greg, it must've been after season four because Greg and I were developing Parks and Rec and he asked me to come to say like, you're going to have to deal with this kind of crap and you should see what it's like. And there was a budgetary meeting and they were trying to slash the budget. And one of the things on the table was reducing the size of the cast because at that point how many series regulars were there 22 or something it was a lot by far the largest cast of any show on television right and greg was like i don't think that's a good idea the people invest in these characters everyone has a different favorite character and even a side character you know a character like you know jan or something who is not even a series regular like if you don't have her on the show in a certain number of episodes it doesn't feel like the same show. And they were like, well, we have to find the money somewhere, you know, we're only making $780 million a year on this thing. And so we went back and we had a meeting with Steve and can't remember who was there, but Greg was like, okay, so here's what happened in the meeting. And they want to cut the budget and this and that. And they threw out a number of options, one of which was reducing the cast. And Steve went, Nope, no, 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 no. Like he said, no, like eight times in a row. And Greg was like, "Well, that was my reaction too." And Steve just went, "No, it's not happening. That is not happening. We will that is not going to happen. Like he just so completely shut it down as even he was like, This is the show. These are the people on the show. This is how the show will be until the end of the show. that's it that's it and And there were executives in the room, and it was like that ended the discussion. It was just over. like there was no it was a little bit like sue me or yeah, fire right. me it was like i in so many words he was saying i won't do the show if you do that like i will walk away and it just shut it down it shut it down forever and no one ever and it never it up came up again never once it's <laughs> <laughs> so amazing yeah he's just he's just such a mensch and and his like it wasn't angry he wasn't pounding his fist he was just saying no that's not gonna happen that's a non-starter move on what's next And uh, that's the way he is. He was, it was just this quiet, firm leadership that he exhibited all the time in every direction. And he, there was another time in 2005, 2006, the big future of TV was product placement. Right. That's where money was going to really be made, right? You were going to, Greg used to just say like, the deal was you have to take some medicine when you watch TV and the medicine is these ads, but then you get a yummy treat and the treat is the show you like, right? right. And product placement was, they were going to try to swirl the medicine into the, into <laughs> into, the, into yummy, the yummy treat. <laughs> and um, Ben was like a big proponent of it. And so was, by the way, everyone else. Like, it was like, this is the future. Like the future is we're going back, ironically, to like the 50s. When right. It was like the Lucky Strike comedy Folgers, hour. Or yeah, exactly.
0: This is delicious. So
5: we have this big meeting, all hands on deck meeting. Um, we had done the Staples thing remember the Staples yes. thing where you had it, you, you bore the brunt of it because yeah. you had to play with that shredder and, and Staples sta- didn't send me a check. By <laughs> <that>. <laughs> no, well that was, I don't know. that was, that was partly, that was a big part of Greg's objection to it was like, if Brian wants to do a Staples ad, then he can go do a Staples ad and they can pay him money. But Staples is getting free Brian Baumgartner and free Rain Wilson and free whoever by like giving NBC money. And the show doesn't even really benefit it. this kind of complicated calculus, right? But we had this big meeting where it, we were really being sold on product placement. And it was, it was getting away from us. It was being put to us in a way where it was like, you're going to say yes to this. We're going to keep telling you to do this until you say yes. Talk, 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 talk. And then Craig went, Steve, what do you think? <laughs> Which was a brilliant idea. <laughs> and Steve said, you know, I started in commercials and commercials are great when you're a struggling actor and you need money and stuff. But what happens in commercials is you do a commercial for Coke and you know, you do a take where you take a sip of Coke and you say, mmm, Coke tastes great. And then they go, okay, cut. Can you rotate the can a little more like this and hold it like this? Okay, good, go again. And you go, hmm, Coke, I love Coke. Coke takes great. And they go, great. But can you braise it up to your lips an inch higher when you take the sip? And he goes, you just do that over and over and over again. And he said, the idea that anyone would have that kind of influence or control over our show and the way we make our show, which is loose and fun and collaborative, and the operators are diving for different things, and the actors get to try different things every time. I remember him saying, the idea that Rain would say something funny and we wouldn't be able to use it because he wasn't holding the Coke can at the right angle. I don't think that's a good idea. And there was a pause, and then it was like, "Okay, well, let's we'll we'll pick up this discussion, you know, uh, next week or something." <laughs> Never brought it up again. <laughs> he just like he was just the he was the guardian of the show in that way. That I mean, is crazy. He he and Greg were just they had two different versions of the job, but the on set world of the show. Steve was the guardian protector of what we did and how it was done and who did it, and no one messed with them. It was just like he was the final arbiter because he knew he understood so implicitly what made it great, and he wasn't interested in letting anyone mess it up.
0: It's a hard time for hiring. So you need a hiring partner built for hard times. That's Indeed. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for quality applications that meet your must-have requirements. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash office deep dive offer valid through March 31st. Go to indeed.com slash office deep dive to claim your $75 credit before March 31st indeed.com slash office deep dive terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed.
7: Hey Dana Goodyear here. Have you ever wondered how a true crime podcast like Lost Hills gets made? How we unearth secrets and tease out the truth and deal with complicated characters while tackling sensitive subjects like violence, trauma, and deception? Now's your chance to find out. Join me and Jake Halpern, host of Pushkin's Deep Cover podcast, on March 16th for a digital conversation on true crime storytelling. Get your tickets now at momenthouse.com slash dclh. That's m-o-m-e-n-t-house slash d-c-l-h.
2: Anybody who is deemed to have power, who thinks differently, is a threat and needs to be eliminated. Big Brother,
7: North Korea's Forgotten Prince, is a new true crime podcast that investigates the life and mysterious assassination of the man once destined to be North Korea's next dictator, Kim Jong-nam. Join us as we interview top experts and investigate the rise and fall of the Hermit Kingdom's one-time heir. From his early promise. He
3: should have been the successor. To the deadly palace intrigues. A lot of
1: cloak and
5: dagger, you know, James Bond kind of stuff about Kim Jong-nam.
7: To the power struggles that ultimately spelled his doom.
3: In North Korea, it's business. It's not personal. When somebody challenges you, that challenger must be eliminated.
7: Listen to Big Brother on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming
6: February 23rd.
0: What to you makes the office, the office? Or what does the office mean to you?
5: Oh God! Well, those are those are two different questions. What makes the office the office, and what does the office mean to me? What 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 does the office mean to you? Well, uh, I mean, it's where the office is where I learned how to write, and I I mean that in exactly as fundamental a way as I'm saying it. I didn't know how to write before I got the job, and now I do, and it's because of that show, not just Greg's tutelage, but the the mechanics of the stories that we told and the, the obstacles we had to overcome. obstacles are good for comedy and the office had the basic obstacles of being a network show and having to cram a story into 22 minutes and all that stuff, which are great obstacles. Everyone should learn how to write on a network sitcom, but then it had all these other artificial obstacles that Greg added and the mockumentary style added and the number of characters that in the show. So Greg taught me how to actually write and then the show taught me how to write well i think because any episode you did you would look at it and go like well it's like a jigsaw puzzle there are 20 people in the cast and there's there's three stories and i have 21 minutes and 30 seconds and how do i put this all together and you learn to be really non-precious with your own writing right you learn like these things are disposable. They're not poems. Greg used to say the the scripts aren't poems, right? They're architectural blueprints. They're, they're living documents and they change and it's okay for them to change. Like you can think this is great. There's only a couple times in my life where something didn't really play well. And I really, really fought for it knowing that it wasn't going to play well. One of them, (laughs) this is like, this is like my own this is my own, like, indulgence, but I wrote yes. a, I wrote a... Dwight has a talking head where he says, um, it was always backstory that Dwight's aunt's maternal ancestors were maybe Nazis. Yes, right. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so we did a talking head where Dwight says, um, my maternal grandmother is like 102 and still puttering around down in Argentina. <laughs> You're right. And then he says, um, I tried to visit her once, but my visa was protested by the Shoah Foundation. <laughs>
4: <laughs>
5: and i just i it didn't <laughs> really it got like a moderate laugh because a lot of people probably didn't know what the Shoah foundation was right. but like but i remember fighting really hard for that in the edit like greg wanted to cut it i think and i was like please 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 but that's the exception that proves the rule mostly it was like you watch we watch these cuts together and you see what works and what doesn't work and you just cut everything that doesn't work like if you don't get precious
0: was I'm, the Shoah foundation in there yeah that that aired, it aired. Yes. okay
5: Yes, that totally aired. And it makes me laugh every time. I remember that. (laughs) I remember that part of it. No, it aired. It definitely aired. Because I was basically like, I will never ask you for anything again for the rest of my life if you leave this in. Was there anything that got cut that you wish hadn't? I'm sure there was. I don't remember offhand. So in the job, I think it was in the job, we wrote a, a, a talking head for Dwight that was... I think an entire page long it was insane it was like um a version of a much shorter version of it aired but there was a it was about how one of his cousins i think or moses brother or something was had one leg that was shorter than the other one and when he ran to the bus he would have to curve in like a long arc because the natural awkward gait of one leg being shorter than the other would (laughs) would cause him to run in like a in like a long curve It was nonsense. I mean, it was it went on for so long. (laughs) Paul and I were just in a crazy giggle fit, and we wrote like like endless talking head for rain, and he loved it, and he like memorized the whole thing and like nailed it. And I was like, I wish this could air, but there's no way to justify it. It's complete. (laughs) Has nothing to do with the story at all, you know. Um, Greg, uh, Greg also introduced this concept of double duty. Have people talked about double duty? Greg's thing was like, look, we have such a limited time here. And he said, bad sitcoms split their lines. Some are jokes and some are are like story. Because he said, what happens is if you've separated the story and the jokes, you cut all the jokes to get the story and then you have nothing but stories. So he was like really hard on us of like, you have to make the story lines funny. They have to do double duty. And if they don't, then it's not good enough. And you gotta do it again, do it again and do it again. That's and, so amazing. Yeah, and it, it's a, that was an amazing lesson to learn because it, it was like, yeah, you don't have time. You can't have talking heads that are just jokes except for when they're about the a Foundation.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there definitely were, so that's so funny. Yeah. Um, I, I want to get you out of here. I, you have talked so much about Greg and so poetically and articulately. Is there anything that you want to say about you leaving with Greg to start Parks and Rec?
5: Yeah, it, so he... It was actually during the writer strike. We were picketing um, at Paramount and he was like, Hey, I want to talk to you. And he basically said like the network wants me to do a new show and I want to do it with you, which was like, you know, I remember, I remember like, what, what does this feel like? And I was like, Oh, it feels like Mozart told me he wants to, uh, design a piano with me or something like that's the, the closest analog I could come was like, this is the, this is it. Like, this is the moment that my life changes even more than it has already. And so at the time, Ben wanted to do a spinoff of The Office for obvious reasons, but I was like, "Is that w- was that what this is?" And he was like, "I don't know." I-, I told Ben and the network that I would do another show with with you, and, and if it turned out that the best idea this is cl- it's classic Greg. It's like if the best idea is to do a spinoff of the from The Office, great. But if the best idea is something else, then we should do something else, which is such a again like Greg also is a man of enormous integrity, creative integrity. And personal integrity but the idea that he wouldn't just cash in he could have cashed in so easily he could have taken every department he could have taken the accountants and spun them into his own show and he could have taken kelly and spun her into a show and he could have taken jan and spun that into a show. he could have, have it he could be the dick wolf of comedy if he right. wanted to but he was like i don't want to harm the integrity of the office proper if there's a way to do it that doesn't do that then great but if not then we'll do something else and so the strike ends and we go back and we make, I don't know, 15 or 16 episodes of the show that year. And then he and I started meeting. We went to um, Norm's Diner and we met for breakfast like three times a week. And I pitched him, I don't know, 275 ideas for TV shows. Right, right. <laughs> and he and he, pit, and he to me, like it wasn't a one-way street. Some of them were spinoffs. Some of them was like, well, maybe we could do something with the warehouse, you know, or maybe a different branch. I mean, he called the show. I don't know if, he's, if you've ever heard this story, but... The reason the show is called The Office colon, An American Workplace is because he, thinking a thousand chess moves ahead was like, if this works, you could do The School, An American Workplace, and do a show about teachers. Mm. You could do like, you know, The Team, An American Workplace, about a minor league baseball team, whatever. Right. So some of them were spinoffs, some of them weren't. We ended up settling on what became Parks and Rec, which was basically like, The Office is an investigation of the private. From BBC
1: Radio 4.
4: a woohooer! a hand-clapper, a high-fiver. I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those
1: winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18+.
7: The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking. When we're not
2: 100% 100% sure yet what to write.
0: Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor.
7: And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist.
2: We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu.
5: Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. ...sector, and we could do it the same thing with the public sector. And then we got really excited about, like, we can invent under Mifflin, but an entire town, like an entire ecosystem with media outlets and restaurants and city hall and local celebrities and all, and the history and all that stuff. And that, so that was what set our brands on fire. So I was around for the beginning of season five through weight loss right. and, and a couple other episodes. But really mostly what I was doing was focusing on Parks and Rec from that time. So, I, I mean, I... I was very nervous because the office is the best job I had ever had in my life by a factor of a thousand. But again, I was like, I don't, you don't turn down the chance to develop a show with Greg Daniels. It'd be like telling Mozart, no thanks. I can find a better piano teacher, you know? Right. Um, So it was very scary, but it was also, I was like, yeah, this is right. This is the right move. And obviously I was correct.
0: (laughs) Right. Here's a, I don't know, this just occurred to me. If Greg had not
5: said that to you, Would you have left the office no god no no i would have stayed i mean i don't know if i would have stayed the whole time but i certainly would have stayed i had no plans to leave like i was happily working there i would have worked there for at least another i think my contract was like two more years at that point right so yeah i mean i wasn't looking to leave at all like i I, there was no part of me that was itching i mean when he offered me that chance And I sort of did my evaluation of like, is there any reason not to do this? The only reason not to do it was how much I love working on my current job. And like, and the obvious risks involved with starting something new. Sure. There is a real scary thing in this business of like, if you've got a bird in the hand, man. Right. Take, like, leave it in your hand. Right. Like, what are you doing? But then I was like, well, if it blows up, I'll bet he'll hire me. Back. <laughs> he'll hire me back. Right?
0: Right. They'll <laughs> find some junior writer to kick out of the way. Can I tell I'll you my favorite?
5: It. Here's my favorite Greg story, uh, maybe ever, and it doesn't even really involve Greg. So we're trying to come up with the idea for Parks and Rec, and I got really excited about it, and I was like, "Oh yeah, right!" It's like it's like a comedy West Wing. That's the like if the stakes of the West Wing are Russia and China are going to go to war in Kazakhstan. The stakes of this show are the boys' soccer team and the girls' soccer team both are trying to use the same soccer field, right? Right. And I just saw the whole thing. I saw and Greg was the one who came up with the idea that there's like a pit that she's trying to fill in. And and so we talked and talked and talked had like a full day session where we'd like pitch and and it's fi- usually with ideas for episodes or or anything, like you know it's good when like you've it feels like you accidentally hit a, an oil vein, you know, right. this oil spurt, like ideas are just flying. <laughs> right, right. But because he's Greg, he didn't commit to it. He was like, okay, good, we've got that. Let's keep let's keep pitching, try to come up with something else. And we talked about a family show, a mockumentary about a family, and we talked about, I um, can't remember what else. But just day after day after day after day. And the whole time I was like, no, we have the idea. We know what it is. We know what it is. So Greg used to have people over to his house to watch episodes, right? right. We had a whole cast and all the writers and everybody would come to his house. And I saw his wife, Suzanne, and she was like, how's it going? And I was like, it's going great, you know? And she was like, do you know what the idea is yet? And I was like, no. And she was like, I, I kind of hope it's that government one. And I was like, I kind of couldn't mask my like anxiety. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, me too, me too. <laughs> and she laughed and was like, let me tell you a story. <laughs> and I said, okay. And she said, so early on in Greg's and my marriage, we were driving, I think they were driving from Chicago to New York. And she says, uh, it's 10 o'clock at night and i'm starving and we're driving through like shoal Kill, pennsylvania and i said honey you gotta you gotta stop you gotta pull over i'm starving i just we i need something to eat and he was like okay so we pull off the highway and we see i was like there's a diner go to the diner so we go to the diner we walk in and the waitress comes over and greg starts going uh, what do you guys serve here like what does everyone like what's everyone's favorite dish here right and she goes like oh people really like the meatloaf and And he goes like, how how do you prepare it? And and she goes, uh, meatloaf, whatever. And he's like, what else do people like? And Suzanne says to him, can we just sit down and eat? And he goes, no, uh, I don't want to know what kind of food they have, you know? (laughs) And so he asked a hundred more questions and she goes, honey, I'm starving, let's just eat. And he goes, Suzanne, we may never be in Shoalkill, Pennsylvania again. This might be the only time we're ever here. We have to like eat at the best place. We have to like learn everything about this place, like get the best dining experience in Shoalkill, Pennsylvania, and she said. Then we pulled out, and we 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 left. We didn't sit down. We what? Drove to another restaurant. We went in. He repeated the. He asked uh, you know more questions. Right. What do you serve here? What do people like? Whatever. <laughs> and finally, they found like the fourth place they went to. Maybe they even doubled back and ended up going back to the first, <laughs> the first one. First or whatever. Place. That would be. Right. Um, but she tells me this story, and I'm like staring at her mouth agape. And she goes that's the man I chose to marry, and that's the man you've chosen to develop a TV show
0: with.
5: <laughs> and it was like, I was like, you're right. You're totally right. And, Ugh. like, the truth is, I'll bet they did have the best meatloaf in Shoalkill, Pennsylvania. Correct. And, like, there's no better TV show that I would have created other than the one that we created together. And, like, it's it's just who he is. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Hi, I'm Gloria Adam, host of Well Read Black Girl. Each week, I sit in close conversation with one of my favorite authors of color and share stories about how they found their voice, honed their craft, and navigated the publishing world and composed some of the most beautiful and meaningful words I've ever read. We journey together through the cultural moment where art, culture, and literature collide and pay homage to the women whose books we grew up reading. And of course, I check in with members of the Well-Read Black Girl Book Club. It's a literary kickback you never knew you needed. And you're all invited to join the club. So tell your friends to tell their friends so we can be friends who love books. Listen to Well-Read Black Girl on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Dutton. And I'm Elizabeth Dutton. Oh, wait, sorry. Zaren, do you want to say your name?
5: No, I'm good. Go, go ahead.
3: We're the hosts of Ridiculous Crime. People love true crime, right? The mystery, the intrigue, the human frailty. Totally. But what a lot of us don't like is the blood and the guts and the mayhem. Wait, 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 wait. Some of us do like the mayhem. Uh, okay, but let's be real. There's nothing funny about murder. Okay, that's right. Our show gives you stories like the kidnapping of Frank Sinatra Jr. and the Max Headroom signal hijacking.
5: Oh, so you mean ridiculous stories like the UK cat shaver and Pablo Escobar's
4: cocaine hippos.
3: Yeah, stories like the dudes who stole Buzzy the animatronic whatever he was from Disney World and the woman whose husband tried to kill her but came back from the dead and surprised him at her own funeral.
5: Yeah, that does sound good.
3: You can find this new podcast, Ridiculous Crime, all over the place. The iHeartRadio app, the Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I don't know how you live.
5: Ridiculous crime. Hello. Hello.
3: Hi. Oh my God, I want to come through the screen and hug you. Hey everybody, Jessica Zor here, also known as Vanessa Abrams on Gossip Girl. I am so excited to share my new podcast with you guys. It's called XOXO, and it's a walk down memory lane all about Gossip Girl. I'll chat with some of the cast, crew, fans of the show. And I'm just so pumped for you guys to go on this journey with me.
6: Hi, I'm Ed Westwick. I played Chuck Bass. I just can't believe that I did that with my life. Jay, we had like the most amazing time.
3: Listen to XOXO on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: let's let's play that uh play number six
7: i thought it was weird when you picked us to make a documentary but all in all i think an ordinary paper company like dunder mifflin was a great subject for a documentary there's a lot of beauty in ordinary things isn't that kind of the point
5: So it's really, to me, clear. That's what Greg thought it was all about. Did Lee or anyone talk about truth and beauty? Has that phrase come up? No. Truth and beauty. There were a bunch of phrases that, that were like sort of the mantras early on. And Greg's, the number one most repeated one was truth and beauty. And he was like, everything that we make should be true, should be real, should feel like it's true. And it should be, the attempt should be to find the beauty in whatever you're doing. In the writing, and the acting, and the directing, and the set design, and the costumes, and everything—truth and beauty, truth and beauty—and it just got deeply ingrained in us. He gave us an analogy for what the show was um, in the first season, which was.
6: I'm Katia Adler, host of the Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico.
5: completely paved parking lot in an office park. It's stretching out as far as you can see. And you're walking across it and it's a hot day. And uh, you're just in a corporate industrial wasteland. And then you look down and there's a crack in the asphalt and there's a single little dandelion growing through the crack. He's like, that's what the show is. It's finding that dandelion, right? Finding that little tiny glimmer of truth and beauty and happiness in aggressively unbeautiful landscape. Greg used to say, "I'm really I sound like a like a like a cult member." Uh, uh, we're talking about Greg as much as I am, but uh, it's impossible to talk about the show without talking right. about him. But Truth and Beauty was like, it didn't surprise me when that was the end of the show. I remember right. thinking, like, yeah, he nailed he he like at the very end of the day, he sort of laid out his view of what m- why the show mattered for everyone through Pam, which is the right character to do it through. You know, um, Pam believes that.
0: Michael may have been, whatever, the lead, but that Pam was truly the heart of the show. Who
5: said that? Jenna. Jenna. Uh, I think she's probably right. Um, I've had this conversation with a bunch of people in the last, with the, with the weird resurgence of the show in the last couple of years. I've talked to Jen Salata and Paul and, and Lee and Mindy, I think, about like just when you rewatch it, what are the episodes that hit you the hardest? I think that the maybe, maybe the best episode that we ever did was Pam's art show. The ending of that episode is no one comes to her art show because no one likes her at that moment in the show. And at the end of it, Michael shows up and one of the things that she drew was the office. And he is just like so blown away by it. And it's so meaningful that he's there for her because no one else showed up. Jim didn't show up. Nobody showed up. And um and she hugs him and then there's that great joke that i think they added on the set where uh she's like what's in your pocket and he goes chunky and she looks at him and he pulls it out and it's an actual chunky, <laughs> chunky candy bar. bar yeah but that the moment where he shows up i think is the is maybe the best moment in, that we ever did like him showing up at her art show and her reaction to it and her hugging him like i think she's right like pam that is the she is the person in those moments who makes Michael feel better when the bird dies and who like, he is kind of the gatekeeper of everybody's emotional status and stuff. And yeah, I know.
0: Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because that uh, coupled with that talking head, that's the last moment of the show is, right. is Pam picking up that drawing and, and taking it
5: with her. That's right. Yeah, I know. And it, it, it was very, that episode was very, hard to break I remember I think Brent wrote it Brent Forrester as we did every episode we rewrote it over and over and over and over again and like that was the that was like a late edition was like the the way out of this we were always looking for the for the off-ramp for Michael of like how does he get out of his whatever miserable <laughs> circumstance he's, he's put himself in and it was like oh the way out is he goes to Pam's art show and then the idea that she drew the office and he takes it back and hangs it up like he's it was like, that was the emotional solve. And uh, it was like, oh, he should, that's where he, he should hang it, right outside his office. It should be the thing that he sees every day before he goes to work, you know? Right. Is that, I mean, those little, those little tiny consistencies, that's what's so great about having a show that lasts for a long time, is you get to do these things in season three or whatever that are there and that like end up mattering a whole lot in season. I, I mean, as a fan, I wrote the episode with the teapot and the note and everything. And then it was like in season nine when I was watching just as a fan and I was like, oh my God, it's coming back. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Uh, and we had, I had um, John write the note himself and I said, don't tell anyone what you're writing. Write whatever you want. Write whatever you think Jim would write. And I don't know what he wrote. I've no, I've never seen it. And I don't think he ever told anyone. I don't think Jen ever told anyone. Like, I, it's like, I think, I believe it's like a secret shared by the two of, essentially by the two of them. And maybe props department <laughs> yeah <right. laughs> if they steamed it open and looked <laughs> it <in. laughs> wow um what do you think its legacy is i mean uh, its legacy is uh it's gonna be enormous i think i mean for a couple of reasons one is it's really good two is the cast is incredible and every time every time someone discovers jenna fisher or john krasinski or rain wilson or you or angelo or anybody or Craig Robinson, they're going to go like, where did this person start? And then they're going to go back and watch the show. But also it just was on, it did, we did 200 episodes. Like there aren't many shows that do that anymore. That era is over. Like there, how many more shows are going to even do a hundred in this era that we're in of six episode, eight episode, 10 episode seasons, even shows that last 10 years do 80 episodes or something. Right. And I think the reason why so many people have discovered it and have like really sat with it is because it's one of the last shows one of the most recent shows where you feel like you can watch a new episode every night and and you know my son is 11 now my son was was born in season four of the show and he's now 11 and he just watched every single episode and every kid in his grade has watched every single episode by the way here's another thing greg did we used to try constantly to like put pop culture references in the show and greg was like you know, no, no pop culture references. Um, This show needs to feel like it could, it's timeless. Like it could be happening at any moment in time from the 70s until like 2050. And I remember thinking at the time like, all right, you're pretty high on yourself there, bud. Just think that this show is going to matter. And now look, it's 20 years later and it matters just as much. And my son doesn't know that that show isn't on the air. Netflix shows and ABC shows are the same. And... It's crazy because now he can watch it and it doesn't feel dated because there's no references to, you know, things that were happening in 2005. But see, I think it's different than that. I respectfully slightly disagree. Interesting, Because when you
0: watch it, which I recently did, it doesn't feel dated. Yeah. Well, see, what I think it was, was you guys in the writing were so specific The characters were written so specifically. And so it almost functions now. Because you don't watch a documentary about the 70s and go, that feels dated, right? (laughs) It's just like, (laughs) that's when it happened. right? So now we're watching a documentary about this
5: very specific time. place at this moment. At this very specific moment. I I think maybe it's both things, right? It's like we didn't call attention to when it was happening. And also we were very specific about what was happening. And then that way, it just feels like it's... A moment in time, a place in time, however you want to put it. So, I like the, in terms of its legacy, to get back to that, I keep getting off topic, but I think that people settle into the show and watch the show because it has this incredible specificity and it has this just deep, deep it feels like you're eating the richest dessert a tiny bit at a time. And that is a really lovely feeling to have. Like, uh, you know, it's a different kind of hangout show from, other successful hangout shows from Cheers or Friends or the right it's a, it's a hangout show that, that feels like the emotional lives of the characters are completely wrought and thick and juicy and you can really follow people's psychologies and their lives as they grow over the course of nine years and I don't I think a show like that is very rare and I think that people will still be watching this show a very long time from now)
4: From Cavalry Audio, the studio that brought you The Devil Within and The Shadow Girls, comes a new true crime podcast, The Pink Moon Murders.
5: The local sheriff believes there may be more than one killer. It's been four days since those bodies were found, and there's no arrest as of this morning.
0: They were afraid. It's faced out in that area. What if they come back or whatever?
3: It scared me to death. Like It scared me. I was very, very intimidated to live
5: here crazy to think you go to sleep
7: one night maybe snuggling with your loved one and never wake up or maybe you wake up in a struggle for your
4: life which you lose join host david ratterman as he explores one fateful night when evil descended upon small town ohio
2: killed eight members of an ohio family in a pre-planned execution a
0: family was targeted most of them targeted while they were sleeping
4: The Pink Moon Murders is available on February 22nd, and you can follow The Pink Moon Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Conquer your New Year's resolution to be more productive with the Before Breakfast podcast. In each bite-sized daily episode, time management and productivity expert, Laura Vanderkam, teaches you how to make the most of your time, both at work and at home. These are the practical suggestions you need to get more done with your day. Just as lifting weights keeps our bodies strong as we age, learning new skills is the mental equivalent of pumping iron. Listen to Before Breakfast wherever you get your podcasts.
5: When was the decision made for writers to start acting in the show from the before the before the pilot i mean greg coming from snl greg wanted snl is very um the membrane between writers and actors is very thin and all the actors write stuff and a lot of the writers are in sketches and stuff and almost everyone there's a writer performer even if he or she is only on staff as a writer or something and he liked that and he wanted to get rid of the the false dichotomy of writers and actors. So he hired Mindy specifically because she was a performer. She was in a play called Matt and Ben that she had written in New York. He hired BJ because BJ was a stand-up and a writer. He and then like we made Paul against his will play Toby in the first season. Like we forced he did not want to do it. He hated it. He hated acting. <laughs> we forced him to do it because it was so funny to have him be the guy that michael scott hates more than anybody right but it was that was always the design i think he wanted everybody to to write and perform ideally except for me because he <laughs> made me a freak i most famously and most annoyingly to me played the character mose shrewd oh my god we never talked about mose. <laughs> Fuck! oh my god I I, th- I assumed
0: it was going to be your first question. I, I, no, I have a whole section on it, but you were so great. Um, all right, well, then just very quickly. Sure. You were cast as Moe's. I was. And you're happy about that? No, I'm, Are you uh, proud? I am hated
5: it. I hated every second of it. Why'd you hate it? Because I was wearing wool clothes and had a neck beard, and it was always really hot, and I, I didn't... The joke was I didn't talk, and... That's not a funny joke, <laughs> and it was always like I had to get up at four thirty in the morning and drive to the middle of nowhere and wear wool clothes. right. And it was and then the joke became with the writers because they knew how much I hated it. They loved like, what if you're shirtless? What if you're on a seesaw? What if you're on a trampoline? What if you're running as fast as you can alongside a car like a dog? I was at Parks and Rec. And they would call me and they go like, "We need Moe's. and I was like, "I have a job, I have a life, I have young children." And they would just make me do it. They would would compete with each other to see what was the most humiliating possible thing they could have me do. But that that episode, Paul, so Paul wrote that episode where that where Jim and and Pam go to shoot farms. Right. and he wrote in the in the script, it literally says Mose appears out of nowhere and runs along the side of the car like a dog. That's what it says. That's I'm a human being, right? And the, so we did that scene. It was 140 degrees. I was in wool clothes and and old work boots that, like, didn't fit properly. And that sprint is probably 150 yards down that dirt road from the time I come out to the time I had to run all the way up into Shroot Farms. It, of course, cuts off long before I ever get there. No, of course. But they were like, you got it. Paul was directing. was like, you got to run all the way there. So I did. Over and over and over again. Probably 12 or 14 takes because Paul (laughs) delighted in it so much. And then later in that episode, I'm in Jurassic Park pajamas that don't fit me properly. (laughs) And then Greg pitched the thing where he was like, what if there's a loud noise and Pam goes to the window and looks out and Moses in the outhouse (laughs) with his pants down and the door is flapping close?" I mean, it was like, it was aggressive. It was, a they knew... I never should have admitted, if I had said like I love doing this, they never would have put me in the show again. But because I hated it so much and was so vocal about hating it. Well, you have confirmed something.
0: Mose is a,
5: is a fan favorite.
0: You hear about people loving Mose. Great. Okay. Let me tell you something. <laughs> what I have always said is I think Mose is a writers' room joke. Oh, and 100%. you have now yeah. confirmed without a doubt. Yes. That it was literally a writer's room joke Ever meant to torture meant, you.
5: Meant specifically to make me miserable, yes. Yeah. Yes. I was in a coffin. I was, <laughs> right. uh, like, hanging upside down somewhere. Right. Like, there were a bunch of things that we did that were then just cut out of the show. Right. Was, I was riding a moped over, a, a, like, a, trying to jump a bunch of cars. I They made me do that moped thing. I don't know how to drive a moped. I right. don't know how to drive a moped. No one taught me how to drive. They were like, just get on and just rev the thing because the point was if i wipe out it'll be really funny. It'll be really yeah. funny. Now ru- and then run across the roofs of these cars. Again, if you slip and fall and break your uh, pelvis, it'll be really funny. Like right. there was the subtext was always <laughs> the worse this goes the funnier it'll be when it right. happens. Well, i this
0: was after you left. I mean, sort of from the beginning but then more and more Kevin started having a lot of of physical comedy type stuff. Sure. And there would be times where I would go to the writer's room and say, I don't remember if you were ever there, but I would say, you guys are writing for Homer Simpson right now. And a cartoon, you can force to do whatever you'd like him to do. He can do whatever, right? But I can't, my body doesn't work that way. Yeah, no one's does. Right. Like the most painful, I feel like I still have pain from it, is the most innocuous you would never, ever, ever know. The office workers have to go to the warehouse and move boxes. Right. So they decide they're going to put... I remember that episode, yeah. Oil down so they could move boxes to get to the truck. They try a bunch of different things, yeah. And everyone thought the big guy falling is really funny. So I just kept falling. Right. Slipping. And which means on a concrete surface with oil, kneecap on concrete.
5: Yeah, Over
0: and... And it's like, guys, I can't keep... You've got to like
5: yeah yeah there
0: has to be some other
5: solution um we had a uh we had a similar thing on parks and rec where nick offerman's character ron swanson was a sort of he was a little cartoonish in his abilities to do various things and we wrote this joke where he wanted to get he was eating a he got lunch and he was eating this hamburger and and the joke was he wanted to get out of the lunch as quickly as possible so in the script he shoved the entire hamburger into his mouth and ate it in one bite. So they Dean Holland was directing it and he was like, Okay, action. And Nick did his best. But then Dean was like, You you really need to eat the whole thing in one bite. And he was like, This is a like a half pound hamburger. Okay, like I <laughs> yeah. maybe the character can do this, but a human can. A and human so, cannot. Yeah, yeah. That's like, exactly. Oh, right. right. Yeah, right. Sorry. Yeah, you're not your character, right? right. Okay. <laughs> right. <All> right. <laughs> I I almost wiped out super hard on that moped. Like, well, first of all the joke was someone pulls up in the car. It was the garden party episode. Someone pulls up in the car and I, and I'm the valet, Mo's the valet. And I get in and they're like, just get in and tear off down this road, right? And and the joke at the time is, why is Mo's driving so fast and, and so insistent? And so I did. And like, I tore off down the road. And I'm not a stunt driver. I don't right. know. Like, and suddenly I'm going 65 miles an hour on a dirt road and on a set. And the back tire's fishtailed because it's a dirt road. Right. And I like slow down and was like, oh, right. I'm not, this isn't a, no one's going to like save me. If I crash this car, I'll <laughs> right, die. If right. I, Cause I also got in and didn't put my seatbelt on. Cause the joke was you get in and take off. And I was like, oh my God, I just, I forgot for a second that I'm not fictional. Right. I'm like sure I'm not <laughs> fictional. I'm a human. Yeah, I'm a human that could, <laughs> could suffer consequences. Yeah.
0: Mine very similar to that was, I think it was when there's the storyline of Dwight telling Holly that, that Kevin is slow, right? And there was a scene we did a m- number of different ways. This didn't end up in, but where I'm driving, she's like, You're driving, you have a car, and I'm like, Yeah, yeah I, I do, car. I have a car. Yeah. And at one point, they were like, Okay, so do that, but then get out of the car, but leave it running, like, leave it, <laughs> like, leave it. Like, yeah. leave, it, leave it in gear. Leave it in gear. Yeah. So, like, as you step out, the car is going to move forward, and then we'll have somebody else who can... Jump in and stop it? Yeah, I did what it a, a couple terrible times. terrible like, idea. It's, like, <laughs> profound... Meanwhile, it's Veda's car. <laughs> right. Like, her real car. <laughs> uh,
5: um, I, uh, uh... That joke that they did with Kevin in the later years where he didn't know the alphabet... Elemento? Elemento. Um, Paul pitched that in season two. And we were like, Paul, that's insane. Like, you can't say that he doesn't know the, he's an accountant. <laughs> he's a working accountant. Like he might not be the best accountant, right? But he's an accountant. And it made Paul laugh so hard. And the second that Paul took over the show, that joke aired. And I was like, well, that's what, <laughs> he got what he wanted. Six years later, he told me it was
0: his favorite joke that he ever wrote. Yeah.
5: yeah yes. Elemento. I he, he told me and us that and, in, and tried to get it into the show in like season two or three or something. And right. And we were like, you know. There's crazy stuff like that. I mean, you know, again, this is a writer's room
0: joke that no one would ever know. But what was Kevin's band going to be? Yeah. And having it be the police. This sounds like a you thing, actually. But the idea that I was a drummer, lead singer of the police. And with the police, the lyrics and the singing is off of the beat of the drums. Right. Because they had like ska rhythms, yeah. You would have to be a musical savant to be able to play drums and sing. Well, it wasn't
5: the police originally. No, it was Steve Miller Band. It was Steve Miller Band, and they were called the Midnight Tokers. Yes. My friend Scott Silveri was in a Steve Miller cover band in high school called the Midnight Tokers. Scott's a writer, and, and I always thought that was the perfect amount of stupid. For a cover, but like a Midnight Tokers is like, oh, what a great. And so it was a Steve Miller band and then they didn't give us the rights to the music. Yes. And so we had to change it. And so I think Mindy maybe pitched Scrantonicity, Mindy or Paul. But, um, I remember being so bummed out that it couldn't be the Midnight Tokers just because I had really had my heart set on that. I
0: sang, we did the whole video. Right, right. That's right. And we had to turn the volume
5: down because it was to like. Yes. jet airliner or whatever I, whatever. I don't remember what it was but yes and maybe it was the Joker I don't know it was yeah right but uh I, I'm happy I, at the end of the day I'm happy that it was Scrantonicity like, yes that was a good solution to that stupid problem <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> um okay you've given us so much time thank you so much you got it Mike man.
5: so really appreciate fun it. I like walking down memory lane uh, it's fun yeah right?
0: it's such a I mean, it's just actually awesome to see. I know. It's been too long. I know. And congratulations on everything. And um, thank you so much. My pleasure. Wow. The things that could have been. Thank you, Mike, for coming back uh, and sharing so much of your story with us. It was so great to have you and just so great to talk the office with you. And thank you all, as always, for listening week to week or day to day. Uh, Don't forget to come back next Tuesday. Same time, same place for another very special episode, because that day next Tuesday is the day that we, or at least I, have been waiting for It will finally be here. The launch of our brand spanking new book. Next Tuesday, head to Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, Books a Million, wherever you get your books. Basically, go there, pre-order your very own copy of Welcome to Dunder Mifflin, The Ultimate Oral History of the Office. And if you do, you can be reading it one week from today. Grab one for yourself. Grab one for everyone that you know because when it comes to a gift you shouldn't have a hard time getting it in (laughs) that's what she said wait no you shouldn't have a hard time getting it in time for the holidays or you know any day because every day is a holiday when you're with me oh okay have a great week everyone The Office Deep Dive is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Ling Lee. Our senior producer is Tessa Kramer. Our producers are Liz Hayes and Diego Tapia. My main man in the booth is Alec Moore. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by my great friend Creed Bratton. And the episode was mixed by Seth Olansky.
4: From Cavalry Audio, the studio that brought you The Devil Within and The Shadow Girls, comes a new true crime podcast, The Pink Moon Murders.
0: The local sheriff believes there may be more than one killer. They were afraid to face it out in that area. The family was targeted. Most of them targeted while they were sleeping.
4: The Pink Moon Murders is available on February 22nd, and you can follow The Pink Moon Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Hi, I'm Glory Adam, host of Well-Read Black Girl. Each week, we journey together through the cultural moment where art, culture, and literature collide and pay homage to the women whose books we grew up reading. It's the literary kickback you never knew you needed. Listen to Well-Read Black Girl on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You can watch the NFL playoffs like a fan, or you can prep like a scout if you listen to the award-winning Move the Sticks podcast. The show is hosted by me, Daniel Jeremiah, and my partner, Bucky Brooks. The two of us are bringing the knowledge from a career as NFL talent scouts to the podcast world so fans can watch and understand the nuances of the game like never before. We'll break down film from the professional
4: and college game to get you ready for the Super Bowl, the draft, and kickoff next fall. Subscribe now and listen to the Move the Sticks podcast on the iHeart radio app on Apple Podcasts or wherever
0: you get your podcasts.
1: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
0: is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board.
1: This is Uncanny USA.
7: Zumo Play.